Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. If you have ever sat under the ministry of H.E. Shmuel, then you know how mightily God used him when he stood behind the sacred desk. This sermon was preached at God's Bible School and College Camp Meeting in 1989, and it's titled, How Judas Fell. You're sure to enjoy what you're about to hear. Scan the 14th chapter just quickly, beginning with, uh, say, verse 3. That's the story of uh, the house in Bethany and the woman with the alabaster box and uh, the words of Jesus to her. And then on through verse 12, speaks about the Passover season and fixing for the Passover. And then uh, we come to the Passover supper itself. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. And as they sat and did eat, Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, One of you which eateth with me shall betray me. And they began to be sorrowful and to say unto him, one by one, Is it I? Is it I? And he answered and said unto them, It is one of the twelve that dippeth with me in the dish. The Son of Man indeed goeth as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Good word for that man he had never been born. And as they did eat, Jesus took bread, and he blessed it and brake it, and gave to them, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said unto them, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many. Verily I say unto you, I will drink no more of the fruit of the vine until that day that I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had summoned him, they went out into the Mount of Olives. I'd like to talk to us a while tonight from rather a somber theme, Judas, a study in unfaithfulness. You and I truly have nothing to say about coming into this world. But we have everything to say as to how we leave this world. And if somewhere in the course of life you have an encounter with Jesus Christ, and I trust you have, you may have a glorious exit from this world. If you have that encounter and make the wrong choice, or if after having made the right choice, change your mind, it can have the most serious of consequences. It would have been better if you had never been born. There are a lot of theories about Judas, where he came from, who he may have been. Old Dr. Godby thought he came from the tribe of Judah. He speculated just a little and thought that he might have been a convert of John the Baptist. Others figured that Judas was a foreigner, not a Galilean. He was a greedy, 
vicious form. Some have the peculiar idea that he was what is known as an astronaut of Jew. That would be a Jew who was especially created of God and by God for this one dastardly deed, the betrayal of the Son of God. But really, those are just theories. I think the truth is closer to home. It's really scary, but I wouldn't doubt that Judas is just like the boy in the choir, or the fellow that lives next door, a handsome kind of a fellow with a keen mind. Judas was the son of Simon. It was a well-established family, no doubt, respected. Judas was a young fellow who liked the new things, the new ideas the bold ventures, and he was intrigued by the Galileans. And so there was a setup, an epical encounter somewhere, sometime, between Jesus and Judas. I don't know where it happened. Nobody knows where. Perhaps by the seaside, perhaps in the countryside, Maybe Judas heard him the first time as he preached in one of the many villages or towns, intrigued by the golden words and the lucid thoughts that flowed through the lips and from the mind of the Son of God. He noted where he would make his next stop. Maybe he just sort of followed along, intrigued by the majesty and the nobility, the regal bearing, the magnetic disposition and personality of the Son of God intrigued him, fascinated him. He couldn't sleep for thinking about it. Perhaps a number of days, maybe even weeks went by, maybe months until eventually he found his way as part of the hangers-on, the disciples, those who followed Christ from place to place. He was among quite a number of whom eventually Jesus would pray. Out of that number who were around, Jesus would choose him as one of his apostles. Somehow or other, he was fascinated by what he saw, fascinated by what he heard. He was intrigued by all the might and movement and grace of Jesus Christ. Do you remember the first time you had your encounter with the Master? Remember the first time he walked into your life? How noble, how regal, how splendid. You bowed your head. Maybe you were convulsed in tears. The inner areas of your life were just shattered. And you bowed to confess. You raised your head to worship. And you followed him ever since. And that's a very wonderful spot in your life. You can tell me right now where it was, in the cornfield, at the corn crib, in the garage, the little white church, the old brick meeting house, the camp meeting up there at the altar. You remember very well. Oh, there is a spot to me more dear than earthly veil or fountain, a spot for which affection's dear springs grateful from its fountain. Is not where kindred souls abound, though that is almost heaven, but where I first my Savior found and knew my sins forgiven. That's a precious spot. Hallelujah. I thank God for it. He committed his life. Sometime in this encounter with Christ, he committed his life to Jesus. He was counted as one of the disciples. He was, a, after a night of prayer, the Master laid his hand, so to speak, upon Judas as well as the other 11 disciples and set them apart and gave them his special blessing and his special mark. They gave to him their love and their loyalty and their worship. They sensed his power. He loved them and they loved him. He was counted with the seven. He obtained a part of this ministry. He was uh, recognized as above average, for he was elected by his peers to be uh, the treasurer of the organization. 
He labored in the harvest. He was with those who no doubt helped cast out demons and to heal those who were sick. He was a lamb going out, as it were, among wolves. He labored faithfully and energetically for the cause of Christ. Despite all that our friends on the opposite side may see, the scriptures seem to point with a great conviction that Judas Iscariot had a meaningful encounter with Christ that wrought an effective change in his life. If we take a few moments here just to ex examine that encounter, we would notice that this encounter lasted three years. His commitment, his love, his loyalty to Christ lasted for three years. Three years to fellowship with Jesus. Three years to walk by his side. Three years to hear him speak. Three years to sense his presence. Three years to watch the very humble manners and means of everyday life and living. I'm trying to put myself back there among uh, those disciples. I'm satisfied they had a wonderful time together. You can't possibly get 12 young fellows together, young men who are separate from just about all the responsibilities and cares of their domestic life, without their having quite a lot of fun together. Times of joviality, whether it was making breakfast or going without something to eat, whether it was tackling the wind or the waves, or whether we're just playing little pranks on one another. Let's not become so sophisticated that we think that the disciples of Jesus were not human. They were very human. Like all men, they were little boys grown up, and they had some wonderful times just being fellows. Yes, they learned, and they heard, and they had nights of prayer, and they had days of prayer, but they had some wonderful, wonderful times of fellowship with the Savior. Jesus was a delight to be around. Jesus was a delight to spend your time with. I found it so, so I know that Peter and James and John and all the other fellows had a good time because the last 50 years of my life have been the most wonderful years you could possibly imagine because I have spent them with Jesus. I get a little tired of these fellows who, be, who sort of labor a point that this is a dour, sour, gloomy way to go, no joy, no fun, no frolic, no delight. My dear friend, this is the most delightful and pleasant and pleasurable way that any boy or girl or young man or young woman or anyone else could possibly go. And no matter how high your IQ and no matter how athletic you may be, you'll find in the grace of God, in the kingdom of Jesus Christ, and in the companionship and fellowship of Christ and the Holy Ghost and the disciples that are a part of this holy way, a joyful, delightful, pleasant tree of spiritual feast as well as other all other satisfactions that go with it. So we had three years with the disciples. You could not help but be touched and changed for the better for having such a fellowship. Three years to establish holy patterns. Three years to establish holy priorities. Three years to hear the Son of God pray. Three years to hear others learn how to pray. Three years of devotion. Three years spending time alone. Three times of walking dusty roads. Three years to see miracles happen. Three years to see unusual things come to pass. Three years to see supernatural power demonstrated. Three years to see love and compassion and thoughtfulness and carefulness as well as cheerfulness manifested anywhere from the raising of a dead body to creating wine out of water at a wedding in the king of Galilee. They were truly wonderful years. In that time, I believe, the disciples not only grew in grace and they grew in the knowledge of the Lord, but I believe their love for Jesus Christ grew as well. But somewhere, somewhere in the, this period, in the last year of his life, in the last, maybe the last eight months of the life of Christ, there was some change 
that began to take place in the mind, in the spirit, in the heart of Judas. And this change as it was an inward change. It was inward long before it was outward. Somewhere, somehow, unseen to the other disciples, but known to Christ, there was a struggle going on for the soul of Judas. Satan was pulling, Satan was tugging, Satan was ever-present, seeking to discourage, seeking to lead astray, seeking to pull down. And in this last year of which I speak, his mind was being challenged. More and more, the thoughts began to come to his mind and come to his thinking. He began to debate and discuss things and bat them back and forth like a ping-pong ball on a table. His ideas would go back and forth in his mind. He began to challenge some of the priorities in the, in the way that Christ followed and some of the patterns of devotions. Perhaps he began to question this matter uh, of worship, which was very evident among the other disciples. Their worshipful attitude, their love, their lavish love for the Son of God. And he began to question the values that Christ had. Christ spoke so much of the things that are not seen. And he seemed to have so little time for the things that are seen. Because the things that are seen are temporal, and the things that are not seen are eternal. My friend, you and I need to be pretty careful about material things, as we heard in the message this morning. Materialism is the, is the, is the Balaam that leads so many of our movement away from lavish love to Christ. The, uh, the love of money is the root of all evil, and so this, this lavish love is being, will be sacrificed in his lust for silver. He wondered if Christ was really worthy of such love. Let's take a look at this little section here in Mark chapter 14 and uh, this lesson concerning the breaking of the alabaster box. Mark 14 and verse 3. Here we notice that they're not in Bethany, in the house of Simon the leper, a woman having an alabaster box of ointment of spikenard, very precious. She broke the box and poured it upon his head. And there were some that had indignation within themselves and said, Why was the waste of this ointment made? It might have been sold for more than 300 pence and the money given to the poor, and they murmured against her. Now, John tells us not because they really loved the poor, but because he was the treasurer, because he held the bag. And Jesus said something here. I tell you, I tell you, friends, what Jesus had to say to the murmurers on this occasion are classic words. He said, let alone. I'm not sure he said it that loud, but he said it emphatically, let her alone. She hath wrought a good work upon me. You see, the values, the values that Christ valued were now being questioned. The love, the lavish love that was bestowed on him by her was under assault. Under the guise of being very religious, under the guise of being careful, a good steward is now making sure that this money would come into the coffers. And he's criticizing the Christ, and he's criticizing this manifestation of lavish love. He becomes hesitant inwardly about obeying. He is reluctant to give his obedience to Christ. And so is reluctance to obey, is a hesitant obedience, obedience at all. And so when the alabaster box is broken, it's a touchstone for him. It's a real test of his love for Christ. It's a real test of his devotion to, to the three years he has already given. And the sharp words that came from the lips of Jesus Christ, perhaps as sharp as any words in the New Testament that he ever uttered, were, let her alone. Let's think a little bit about this. Compromise and, uh, and obedience is disobedience. 
sin germinates when we no longer follow him in lavish love and obedience. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. How is his will done in, in heaven? It's done, it's done instantaneously. It's done joyfully. It's done with alacrity. It's done with great delight. How are we to exercise the will of God in our life when we know what the will is? Having known the will of God, we are to wade in clear up to our eyebrows to the best of our ability. If he says go through the wall, it's not mine to, to hit, not mine to question the wall. It is mine to hit for the wall. It's his to make the hole. My job is to obey God whether I think I can or not. Whether it's a restitution or whether it's a confession or whether it's a separation or whether it's a journey, whatever it may be, my job is to obey what I know can be the will of God. And when you become hesitant about obeying God on any point, on any point, whether it relates to dress, what you put on or what you take off, whether it relates to money, whether you spend it or whether you, you lay it aside or whether you give it in the offering at, here at the Bible school or to the mission project, when you begin to reluctantly ex examine a clear prompting of God's Spirit in your life, you need to check the level of your love in regard to the Master. And this is exactly what happened with poor old, poor Judas. This lavish expression of love, this lavish expression of worship, this lavish loyalty of quick and obedience to Jesus Christ, this thing caused him to question the values that he was seeing. And somehow or other, in his own heart that was now unsettled, his heart that was no longer deeply in love, a heart no longer loyal to the Christ, a heart no longer deeply loyal to the Son of God, he now is looking furtively about, covertly looking about, seeking, seeking, seeking little things that show up here and there, reflect his inner lust and reflect his inner break. Change takes place slowly. We see people who make great changes in their appearance. People who one day were lavish in their obedience, lavish in their love for Christ. Their separation from the world was, was, was very evident. Not that they were peculiar or odd, but they were clean cut, separated from the world and the flesh of the devil. You knew they belonged to God. You knew they belonged to the old-fashioned crowd. You knew they were a part of the old-fashioned way. These people who eventually separate themselves from the way, those eventually who separate themselves from Christ, do not do so overnight. It's a slow and a careful, subtle process, little by little. They themselves hardly recognizing what is happening to them. There's not a thing that is mentally calculated. They're not really setting out to go back. They're actually are unaware of what's really taking place. And so, as our message this morning, one portion suggested this matter of our loving God. This lavish love is the key to our relationship to God and to Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Friends, when you love Him lavishly, there's no argument in your life. When you love Him lavishly, there are no issues in your life. When you love Him lavishly, there's no controversy between your altar and between His throne. The controversies arise when we no longer love Him as we ought. The controversies arise when there are issues that are beginning to develop over which we are, we are reluctant to grant and confess and acknowledge that we should and we ought to do. The romance is beginning to leak away. Eventually, this romance leaks away and is followed by a spirit of resentment. And that resentment is, is reflected right here in this lesson as well as other parts of the life of Judas. He changed, but he changed so slowly. Change is always slow, whether it's from glory to glory or from uh, from. Uh, evil and wickedness to 
The change is a slow and a gradual change. You don't merely snap your fingers or flip a switch and have the kind of change that many people think happens. No, it's a slow, gradual, what uh, sometimes is known as the salami process, a slice at a time, a little at a time, a little bit here, little by little, moving into Sodom and moving towards Sodom as Lot did. And so this change is very slow. Now let me tell you something. Only God is unchanging. And that's why we must constantly be on our guard as institutions, as God's Bible school, as the IH convention, or as any church. We only God is unchanging. I'm not unchanging. I change. I'm under constant tension and pressure to change. And so are every last one of us who are here tonight. And my dear friends, for you and I to maintain a fixedness of relationship with God that is delightful to our soul and satisfying with Him that keeps us from, uh, from denial and from betrayal, we must do one thing. And that is, sir, we must love Jesus Christ lavishly. We must fix our gaze upon the Son of God and give Him quick and full and instantaneous obedience to whatsoever He saith unto you. We do it! Whether we understand it all or whether we do not understand it all. Christians, I made this little note before I came, Christians remain Christians and unchanged by the world and the flesh and the devil only by their fixed gaze upon Jesus Christ and only by pouring out lavish love and praise and ready obedience to Him daily. Amen. It's the only way you can do it. You fix your gaze upon Jesus Christ. You fix your gaze upon God. It's not it's not the standards of the church, and it's not the standards of the denomination, and it's not what someone else has to say. If you and I maintain our love and our loyalty to Jesus Christ, despite the pressures of hell and the world and the compromise about us, we will only do it by fixing our gaze upon Christ and maintaining that fixedness in our mind. Beholding him ever before us, keeping him ever before us, and in so doing, we are sensitized to decent. We are sensitized to God, and we are sensitized to the evil about us, and we're aware of the world in which we live, and we have the holy, the holy Son of God before our gaze and before our mind. That's why we stress daily devotion. That's why we stress the house of God and its prayer meetings. That's why we stress the word of God. We are constantly calling our people to the word and to the centerpiece of the plan of redemption, Jesus Christ, because it's the only way we can keep ourselves from being torn apart by the world and the flesh and the devil and all the powers of compromise in the world. Amen. But he would change. He changed his mind about Christ and his purpose. He changed his mind about the values that Christ held and proclaimed. He changed his gaze from one of love and adoration to one of criticism and cryptic cynicism. He changed his direction. He changed the direction of his own interests. He became in, he became interested in silver instead of in the Savior. To him, he became skeptical that Jesus was no king. He never would be a king. He looked frail. He looked weak. He to him he looked anemic. He could never usher in a kingdom. He had doubts in his mind as to the true veracity of Jesus Christ being the Messiah. If he'd have had Peter's testimony or the disciples' testimony, we believe and are sure thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God, then my friend, he'd have had an anchor. But at this stage in his life, he was no longer sure. And so... He changes his direction because he changes his mind and he changes his values.
changes his attitude toward worship. He now comes to the place where Christ is not an object of worship and not an object, an object worthy of his lavish love. Now it's money that's the object of his love. Money now has become the center of his world. And friend, unless we're very careful, materialism, money, houses, and lands can well become the center of our world in this day. It's not a matter of whether you have a lot or not. They that would be rich, not the fellow that has it, they that would be, be rich have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Just trying to get there. Let me tell you, friends, lust, whether it's lust for money or lust for women or lust for things, is the first shabbier rap that runs across the attic of the mind when you begin to drift from God. It's lust that destroyed Sodom. It's lust that destroyed Achan and his wedge of gold and his Babylonian garment. It's lust that destroyed David and Bathsheba, and it's lust that ruined Solomon's great kingship. It's lust, lust, lust. I'd like to just stop and take a little detour there. What about the inner lusts that break up many marriages? What about the lusts that break up many homes? If I may... uh, Hold your attention a few moments. I'd just like to talk about those kind of things that we seldom take time to think about. What about the emotional adultery, the fantasies, the pornography? All you're thinking Baker and Swigart and Hart and Carter and Kennedy, but we have our own Bakers and we have our own Swigarts and we have our own cesspools of iniquity and we have our own fallen idols. We don't need to point our fingers. God forgive us for pointing our fingers at anybody. This is the plague, this matter of lust, sensuality. Sexuality and overdrive in our in our day. And sad to say much of it in our movement. It's a sad statistic when we read. That there's only one and a half percentage points between broken homes and broken marriages between evangelicals and the world in general. Apparently, somewhere we as the church and the pastors and the ministers, we have failed to convey the true message of God as to what marriage is all about. The easy divorce and the easy attitude about divorce. Those are it's, it's, it's shabby. It's shabby thinking. It's shabby preaching. It's a shabby theology. God abominates divorce. God abominates a shattered home. But I'm not really talking about the shattered homes right now. I'm talking about homes that may be headed on the rocks. I want to talk to that man and that woman, that husband and wife, for just a little while. I want to talk to you about your inner relationships. I want to talk about how you are getting along. I want to talk about the lack of love in many of our homes where husbands and wives are in sad and sorry domestic relationships because there's no love there because of quarreling and fighting and bickering and backbiting and sniping and problems, uh, discipline problems over the children and money problems and and domestic problems and in-law problems and so, sad to say, many holiness homes and other homes as well are sort of armed camps. I stopped to talk with a fellow the other day who was having domestic problems, and, and he said, uh, I said, why are we just, we're just sort of passing like, they're like ships in the night. We, we don't even blink at each other. We just go rumbling through the house in our own way, doing our own thing. Tragic, 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 to say the very least. And yet it happens again and again. What about your your married love and your married life? Do you love one another? If there are problems in that relationship, let me read you something. 
that may help us all. Here's a confession that uh, that a fellow was brave enough to write. I uh, comes from Keith Drury, General at that time General Secretary of the Youth of the Wesleyan Church. I appreciate his candidness. I appreciate his courage in stating this. It was published in the pages of the Wesleyan Methodist. He addressed a very, this is only a portion of that letter. I thank God for that letter. I thank God for his openness. I wish some of the folks that have some of these backhanded remarks to make about some of the people in the old uh, holiness churches would just sort of button up their lip for a while or zip up and somebody lock the thing and, and throw the key away. Amen. I was a Wesleyan for many, many years. I owe a deep debt of gratitude to the old Wesleyan church. I'm no longer a part of it, but I'm here to say this. That this letter faces up to Some people think, well, that letter was written just to face up to the awful mess in the church. This mess is not in the Wesleyan church anymore, and it's in the conservative movement anymore than it is right here in this crowd. Some time ago, I, I preached uh, along this line, and at the close of the service, a young woman came down the center aisle and dressed in very fine, typical holiness, simplicity, carrying a baby. And she stood in the aisle and, and she said in tears, Brother Spool, how can I keep this from happening again? Well, I had no idea. I didn't know her. didn't know what she was talking about. I said, well, sister, what do you mean? She said, this, this, and how can I keep this from happening again? Well, I said, would you mind explaining yourself? Well, she said, this, this baby I have, she said, is out of wedlock and and she went on just a little bit with her sad and sordid tale. But as well, what can I do to see that this doesn't happen again? Well, my dear friend, there isn't any a simple, easy way. Just accept the lay down, thou shalt, and thou shalt not. Our people get into trouble like that. And they get into it easily. And they don't just happen to all be... Uh, in headquarters somewhere else, it happens right here. Pregnancies out of wedlock are a part and parcel of the sad and sorry sight of our day. But we should love the people that are there. We should have compassion and love and caring concern for those that are mixed up. I'm not in favor of throwing them out. Somewhere forgiving love has to manifest itself. But anyhow, this letter. Let me read it to you. It says, all started innocently. This is his confession. At least it seems so. This fellow writing to Mr. Drury said, my ministry kept throwing a certain girl and me together. She was one of the most active lay persons in the church. We carried a great burden for the church and people. We had a common ministry. We worked together. We shared together. We prayed together. We laughed together. Just her and me. But in the group, but in the group, of course, yet there was an attraction there, and there was a spark there. Why are we so slow to learn? Why do we play with fire? Why do you tempt yourself? My wife was busy with the kids and her job. She never expected anything, and I was continually around this lay woman. It happened just like you warn, we started climbing the ladder of affection, exchanging little pleasantries, looking forward to meeting each other, meaningful glances, double meaning, phrases, kidding one another, little touches, a little pat, a little squeeze of the hand, a quick hug. All accompanied by very spiritual overtones. It was accelerated. I'm not saying I wasn't guilty, just that sin had such a powerful attraction to me. I wanted more, and I was willing to risk everything to get it. So did she. It seemed like I was helplessly swept along by a torrent of desire. It was like I was a teenager again, free, going too far, and then repenting and preaching and promising to do better and doing it again and preaching. And then just as quick, I was hungry, seeking more sin. Soon I quit resisting and was swept into outright adultery. And all this time, I kept up my ministry. I don't 
don't think anyone really knew it. That's the scary part. One of the real scary things is how people, how preachers can get messed up in stuff like this and carry on and administer the sacraments and stand behind the sacred desk and fight like a tiger before they surrender their credentials. Then it all came down to the crash. We got found out. My life's a shambles. My dreams were shattered. I lost my beautiful wife. Wife, I've lost my wonderful children. Oh, how I ache to be with them again. I've lost my ministry forever. What an ache to sit around in a service without being a part of it. It's gone. My future, my hopes, my dreams, my family, my reputation, my ministry is gone. The devil doesn't show you where the little temptations will lead you. The excitements and the delights and the powerful seductiveness of sin is fleeting. It all begins so innocently. Take a look at your marriage. Husbands and wives, take a look at your the realm of fantasy you live in, the daydreaming you do, the kind of literature you're reading. If you've got the abominable, not snowman, but television man in your home, you know what you're looking at. You know what you're following. You know how fantasy is leading you. Know you're playing with fire. Maybe you're renting X-rated or uh, videos. I don't know what's going on. I have no idea what you may be doing, but I know this: that my friend, you no longer have the lavish love for Jesus Christ you once had. There was a day when that was so an abomination to you. That's the last thing you would have spent your time with. But I had a young minister tell me. And the confession was also made in Moody Monthly, a young fellow that had a, had a VCR. And I'm not preaching against VCRs as such. I'm talking about, that it, after all, the VCR is, isn't any better than the character of the fellow that's got it. And he said, we started off getting little things for, ch- for our children. And then he said, we got something for just wife and I. And then she went away to her mother's, and while she was gone, I got something just for me. He said, it's about midnight, and, and I was watching this, and he said, the Spirit of God spoke to me. He said, what are you, the pastor of the First Baptist Church in such a type of town? What are you doing here before this thing, looking at that kind of trash? How did you get here? He got there little by little. He said, one day I had a lavish love for Christ. I loved him. I adored him. I preached, and I poured out my soul, and I visited, and I called, and my soul was on fire. And we had a wonderful home life and a wonderful family life, and we loved missions, and we're pushing for God. But all of that, little by little, petered out, petered out, petered out, petered down, until here I am, alone in the house with my children asleep. Now. He sold it off. He threw it out. I'm sure it was poor junk. Begins innocently a glance, a little chatter, a lingering talk, casual encounter that lasts a little long, a hunger to talk. Watch yourself. You find yourself, young man or young woman or preacher man, you find yourself looking forward to meeting certain ladies along the trail, or you find yourself, young lady, looking forward to meeting certain fellows along the trail. Is anybody listening at all? My dear friend, my dear friend, watch, watch, watch. You say, well, what, what can I do to keep this from happening? Live close to God, where you have a tender conscience, and you have a pure heart. Love God with a pure heart fervently. Flee youthful lusts. Joseph like, flee, flee, flee. They may put you in jail. You'll lose your reputation, but you'll save your soul. You may lose your life, but you'll make the crown your crown in the city of God. Flee, youthful us. Sometimes they're not so youthful. Sometimes old gray-haired, beat-up conjures are as lustful and as licentious and as caught up on pornography and the sensuality that goes with it. Oh, God, have mercy upon us. I tell you, friend, our safeguard is a pure heart, loving God with a pure heart, fervently, and fixing our gaze upon Him. Do you love Him lavishly? Do you have a lavish love for Christ? Amen. Do you pour out your soul? Do you give sacrificially? Do you pray sacrificially? Do you 
Is put your soul out before him? Is Christ the consuming passion of your life? Is Christ all and in all? Or just incidental? In closing, I just wish to speak about this epitaph written for Judas by Jesus. Jesus said, better that this man had never been born. As I said to you a few moments ago, we have nothing to say about coming into this world. But we have everything to say about how we leave it. With Wesley, we may leave it with a shout, the best of all, God is with us. Or we may leave it in despair, like poor Judas dangling over the cliff, disemboweled, shrieking in the confines of a lost world. Think of it for just a moment. Here they are in the upper room, celebrating the Passover. The twelve of them, they spent three wonderful years together. The room was prepared. They are prepared. The blessing and the presence of Christ is there. He breaks the bread. How precious. How beautiful. He blesses the bread. Breaks the bread. And he blesses it. And he gives to Peter and James and John. Each one. And they take their bread. There they are reclining seated about the table and he makes a statement. One of you shall betray me. One of you sitting at this table. Is it I? Is it I? I'm sure Peter said it. I wouldn't be surprised if John said it. No doubt Judas raised the question too. Is it I? But he ate the lamb drank the cup, but really he preferred pottage. Spiritual things had lost their appetite for him. Spiritual ideals had gone flickering by the way. He was playing the part of the fool. He would go out. He would go out of there to collect silver. He had made his choice. His heart was cold. He would come back. He'd be back soon, but not to fellowship. He'd come back to plant the kiss of betrayal. He would come back and call him Rabona and Master and then embrace him. And that was the signal. And cruel hands out of the darkness of the night came to take him. But when they saw him standing, regal, noble, splendid. They fell on his feet as though they were dead. Who are you seeking? Someone lifts a timid head. We're seeking Jesus of Nazareth. Well, here I am. What do you want? We want, by this time perhaps they're on their feet, we want Jesus of Nazareth. I'm he. And so now, Judas steps forward and kisses him. So there's no mistake concerning the identity. And they take him. The flickering torches disappear. And the unfair judgments will soon take place. And Judas went out. Judas went out. And he went back to the people that had given him the 30 pieces of silver. And he said, I betrayed innocent blood. I made a terrible mistake. I missed it. I was wrong. I was wrong. Here's your money. Here. We don't want your money. We don't want your money. And so the tinkle and the sound of 30 pieces of silver rattles on down through the centuries. And the coldness somehow of Judas' heart Blows a chill on my heart as well. And I raise my question Is my love lavish? Do I really worship him with a lavish love? Do I love him with a pure heart fervor? Do I have a 
love relationship with Christ? Do I love the place of prayer? Do I love the Word of God? Am I lavish in my giving? Am I sacrificial in my life? Am I quick in my obedience? Or am I slow-footed? Do I drag my feet? But I know God wants me to make a change in some aspect of my life or my attire or my residence or my occupation or something or other. Am I loving your heart perfectly? Can we bow our heads? Father, this is a different kind of an evening we've spent together, and we know that most of this auditorium is filled up with people who profess a deep love for thee. We know this is the question you ask Peter, lovest thou me? Tonight, as we come to the closing moments of this service, help us to search our hearts deeply. Do we love thee with a lavish love? Do we love thee with an obedience that's quick and speedy to flee to do thy bidding? Do we love the Lord our God with all our heart? Or are we in a grand deception, putting on a good front? Or could something good happen to our love? I wonder why our heads are bowed. Maybe just someone playing softly on one of the instruments. Just I don't want to take for granted the heritage of holiness that has been passed on. I don't want to lose the fire. Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want to lose the fire, I don't want to lose the fire.